Welcome. Our talk today is on the subject of the Millat Ibrahim, the faith of Abraham. This to me is a very important subject when we come to the cutting edges between Islam and Christianity. And in all my years of experience of Muslim outreach, it's been one of the best areas for really effective witness to Muslims. And I hope you'll see that as we go through this this morning. Not only because it is uh, so well grounded in the Christian scriptures as the basis of New Testament, uh, New Covenant theology, but also because the Quran gives so much support to the Christian position, as you'll see as we move through this discussion. So that when you witness to Muslims and you share the gospel with them, you can use the Quran as a support. I love doing that wherever I can because it captures the Muslim year. And you can do that here as well in so many different ways. Just to kick off with, in Islam and in Christianity and in Judaism, Abraham has a certain definition in all our scriptures, all three of them is common to them. And that is that he is called the friend of God. Uh, none of the books go into any great detail at the points where they define him as such. But we'll see as we go through our talk exactly why he gets this title. But let's have a look at just some of the passages of Scripture and of the Quran where this title appears, and then we'll have a quick look at it before we go on to our subject in the main. Firstly, in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, we read these words, Jehoshaphat, <coughs> king of Judah, speaking, Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And then in Isaiah 41, verse 8, God himself speaking says, You Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And then James in the New Testament, in chapter 2, verse 23, picks on, up on this as well. And he says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And then finally, the Quran supports us in Surah 4, verse 125. For Allah did take Ibrahim for a friend. And in, as in consequence of this, Abraham is called in Islam, Khalilullah, meaning the friend of God. Um, other prophets in Islam have got similar names. Muhammad, for example, is uh, Rasulullah, Messenger of Allah. Jesus is Ruhullah, Spirit of Allah. Uh, Moses, Kalimullah. Word of Allah, and so Abraham is called the Khalilullah, the friend of Allah. But the Quran says nothing further and doesn't give you any kind of inclination as to why God would have given him that title. Immediately, you look into the Quran to find out what the basic definition of any true believer in God is, and you find that it puts a limit, it puts a ceiling, and it says, So far and no further. Surah 19 verse 93 says, No one in the heavens and the earth can come to the compassionate but as a servant, an abd, from which you get the name Abdullah, meaning servant of Allah. So best you can do is come to Allah as a master, or Malik, the sovereign, and just simply come to him as his servant. Well, why then was Abraham called the friend of God? Friendship goes far beyond servanthood. Uh, servant works for you. You pay him his wage, he's free to leave you, he doesn't work properly, you're entitled to dismiss him. You don't love him, you don't have to, he doesn't have to love you. 
can actually despise you. You'll still pay him a salary as long as he does his job properly. And that is the problem with any concept between God and man of master and servant alone, that it just does not breed any kind of kinship, any kind of companionship. But the very word friendship implies intimacy. You see here a bit of an equal footing. Two people cannot be friends unless they can take off whatever their badges of authority are and sit around a table and share a drink together and be each other's equals. And that is exactly what is implied in this expression that Abraham was called the friend of God. Not that he's equal to God, don't get me wrong, but that he's allowed to come onto an equal footing with God. Uh, you find this often in sort of military language when you might find a, a sergeant, for example, in an army who's subject to a major or perhaps to a lieutenant or a captain, has to take orders from him, and then suddenly he walks in and he really wants to talk to his major face-to-face -face and straight about something. So he looks at him and he says, permission to speak plainly, sir. And then the man will say, go ahead, right, and now you can talk without badges and without authority coming into into the play. You just simply discuss something face-to-face -face as two equals. Now that's what the expression friendship implies. It implies goodwill, mutual goodwill, uh, acceptance on the part of one and the other, and a close relationship, in fact even a unique relationship with Abraham obviously had with God, which the Muslims cannot explain because of this limitation that says you can become a servant of God and no more. If we look into the Bible and ask, why was Abraham called the friend of God? We get an answer, first hint of it in Genesis 15 verse 6. When God said to him, I will give you uh, a son and nations will come from him and they will bless themselves through your son. It's just a promise. God never said to him, uh, perform 50 rakats, go on pilgrimage a hundred times and I'll do something for you. Earn this favor I'm doing for you. No, he said, I'll just do it. Like that, just out of the blue. And in Genesis 15 verse 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord said, well, then I credit that to you as righteousness. I credit that to you as righteousness means the, I'm putting you on an even footing with me. Because you believe in me, because you accept my promise, just when I take you on an open sort of basis, better just talk to you openly and say, listen, Abraham, friend to friend, I'm going to bless you and give you a son and through him I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And Abraham says, I'll trust you on that. And God is pleased. The reason for this is <clears throat> that there are different ways in which God can project himself to man. And the instinctive way which God always, by nature in the past, certainly in the early days, projected himself was to simply put his righteousness forward. Sometime like in the face of Satan when he sinned and others just put it right in their face. But when God projects his righteousness, it causes nothing but tension because human beings just cannot respond to that. And it results in conflict and results in condemnation and God becomes angry and human beings become rebellious. So with Abraham, God said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to project my faithfulness to him. In other words, I'm not going to say to Abraham, you must be as righteous as I am and I'll accept you. No, I'm going to do this. I'm going to say to Abraham, I'll accept you as righteous. I'll declare you righteous, provided you respond to my faithfulness. Faithfully, I'm promising you I'll give you a son. And when Abraham had faith in that faithfulness, God said, that's fine. That's what I'm wanting from now on. You and I 
are on a one-on-one basis, friend to friend, and I'm just going to declare you righteous to level the playing field. The next thing we find in both Islam and Christianity is that Abraham is called the father of the faithful. In Genesis 17 verse 5, God says to him, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. We find again in Galatians 3 verses 7 to 9 that true believers are those who share the faith of Abraham who is the father of those who believe. So you see, Paul says, that it is men of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So then those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. So we are his sons and he is our father. What exactly is the faith that uh, Genesis is talking about, Galatians is talking about? How do we see it? Well, as I said to you earlier, it is faith in God's faithfulness. It is not something the prophet does to earn God's approval. It's a response to something God projects at him. And that is a faithfulness. I like to put it like this. I've said it in other lectures in the series, but I can never tire of drawing this comparison because it's the best one I know to bring it out. It's the same as the distinction between the sun and the moon. The sun generates light, a blazing light, uh, but the moon at best can only reflect that light. But at full moon, the more the moon turns to face the sun, the greater the light becomes. Uh, the moon cannot do without the sun's light. The sun doesn't need the moon at all. It just generates light. Take the moon away, it won't affect the sun at all. Take the sun away and the moon can't shine one bit. And that's how it is with God and man. God generates faithfulness. Take man away, it doesn't mean a thing. But a man can return no light to God unless he responds to that faithfulness. So as the glorious light of it shines, we shine when we respond to it. That's the biblical concept of faith in God's faithfulness. We'll see shortly the Islamic concept of Abraham's faith is very different. But because Abraham had that faith and responded to God's faithfulness, so he's set up as the prototype of a true believer, the father of all believers. Romans 4 verse 16, those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of us all. And the Quran says the same, interestingly enough. In Surah 2 verse 124, I will make you a leader to the nations. And in Surah 22 verse 78, Strive hard for Allah with due striving. He has chosen you and not laid upon you any hardship in your religion, the faith of your father, Ibrahim. Milata abikum Ibrahim. Very interesting. But friend, father, this is strange language. This is not Quranic language in normal sense of the word. As I say, the Quran will fall back at any moment, and so will a Muslim, into the groove of master to servant and that relationship alone. It's quite clear, though, that the relationship between Abraham and God was on a much better footing, a much more level playing field kind of footing. Let's have a look at this promise of a son to Abraham. Firstly, both the Quran and the Bible admit and confirmed that the son spoken of was promised to Abraham through his wife, Sarah. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. In Romans 4 verse 19, we're told that when Abraham was 99 years old, the son was promised to him directly through his wife, Sarah. In Genesis 17 verses 15 to 16 and verse 19, read as follows. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall no longer call her name Sarai, 
but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And the Quran again, without questioning and without explanation, confirms this. Surah 11 verse 71 says, And his wife, please note singular, not wives. Hagar was not a wife of Abraham. And his wife was standing by and she laughed. But we gave her glad tidings of Ishaq, Isaac, and after him Yaqub, Jacob. And Surah 37, 112 says the same. We gave him the good news of Isaac, the prophet of the righteous. What Abraham did simply was to take God at his word. It's a lovely saying in Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He's utterly faithful to every promise he makes. So, Romans 4.20 says of Abraham, No distrust made him waver as he considered the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God could do what he had promised. Now let's have a look at the command to Abraham to sacrifice his son. This came when Isaac had reached probably about the age of 14 years. And I think Abraham, who hadn't heard from God for almost two decades, suddenly hears a word from heaven, Abraham. And he responds and he says, yes, Lord. And he gets what he doesn't expect. I think at this stage, Abraham was probably sort of excited. And he thought, now my son is just getting to that age where he's beginning to turn into adulthood. And I'll begin to see how the promise is going to be fulfilled. Instead, God says to him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering. Genesis 22 and verse 2. Wow. I just wonder what went through Abraham's mind. I know a number of things that had to have gone through his mind. I just picture him looking in advance, anticipating the end of the cremation of his son, and a gust of wind coming down and the ashes blowing away and he just looks and he says, there goes the promise of God to the wind. <laughs> but it's very important to see what was happening here. You see, God wasn't just blessing Abraham and promising things without expecting some kind of uh, response from him. At this stage, Abraham is put right on the spot to see how far he'll hold his faith in God when everything seems to be going against him. And not only that, when the faithfulness of God itself might be put in question. The Lord is deliberately testing him. Let's see if you'll trust me. When firstly, I speak as though I've forgotten my promise to you or I've just decided to change it. And secondly, when I'm asking you to do something that is very morally questionable in the normal way. Now let's start with that one, the morality of this. We read in Deuteronomy 12 verse 31, Moses said to the people of Israel, you will not do so to the Lord your God. For every abominable thing which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. <laughs> oh, uh, Moses says, this is one of the worst things you could ever do. And now God says to Abraham, and almost seems to be talking like one of these strange gods, do it for me. I'm demanding human sacrifice. And then in 2 Chronicles 28 verse 3, we read of Ahaz, the evil king of Israel, probably the worst one they ever had. 
that he did this. He burnt his son as an offering according to all the abominable practices of the nations around him. Secondly, question here is one of how far Abraham loved God because he loved his son and the Lord makes a point of that. Uh, take your son, your, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and give him up for me. In other words, the test goes one further. It is, do you love me more than your own son, more than anything you have on earth? I'll know if you're prepared to fulfill this command and sacrifice him for me. And then the third thing was the promise itself. You not only must slaughter your son, but you must offer him up as a burnt offering. So at the end of the day, the wind blows the ashes away. And how does the promise of God now ever get fulfilled? Well, I've often spoken to Muslims about this in conversation. And I've asked them, how do you think the prophet would have responded when he was given this command? And I offered them three or four uh, alternatives. And the first one I've said is, Abraham could have said to himself, I think God must have forgotten his promise. You know, it's a long time ago now, 15 years, uh, plenty of time for somebody to forget something. And immediately Muslims react, oh, no, no, Allah could never forget anything like that. Unthinkable. All right, ditch that one. So I say, well, maybe Abraham thinks, you know, perhaps God's changed his mind. I mean, God is entitled to do as he likes. He favors whom he wills and he rejects whom he wills, sort of Quranic attitude to God. So perhaps my son doesn't come up to expectations. Perhaps he's changed his mind. Oh, Muslims will even argue with that and say, no, you know, Allah would never make a promise like that to him and then just simply change his mind. And I agree. Every word of God proves true. It's one thing I know from the Bible and that even God himself, once he's committed himself and speaks plainly and says he will do something because of his perfect faithfulness, just won't go back on it, not under any circumstances. doesn't matter what happens in the meantime. And I've said, but then there's a third reaction that Abraham could have had. He could have looked at it and said, well, I don't know. This really baffles me. How can God fulfill that promise if I've got to sacrifice my son? How am I now going to have grandsons and great-grandsons and kings and nations are going to come from me? Well, I don't know, but I will be a good submitter. I will just submit to God, I will just accept the command, and I will say to him, whatever you command, I will do. That, now the Muslim is in a bit of a corner, because that's exactly how Muslims think. I said, that's submission, that's Islam, that makes him a Muslim, I'm a submitter. I don't have to think about it, I don't ask questions, which a good prophet in Islam should never do. In fact, a good Muslim doesn't ask questions, not trained to ask questions about religion. So you just accept it. I once had a, a, I was once in a Muslim home in South Africa and we were talking about Jesus and, uh, to, uh, and his crucifixion and I'd been questioning the Muslim concept of the substitution of somebody else for Jesus. And I was really beginning to rub it into this family and I said, how could God ever make somebody else look like Jesus so that that person gets unfairly victimized, crucified instead? What sort of a God is that? I said, and why would God allow the mother of Jesus to stand at the foot of the cross looking to all intents and purposes what looks like her son and leave her to grieve, John the disciple to grieve, Mary Magdalene to grieve, and so on? And while I was doing this, two young Muslims came in, dressed in white from head to foot, skullcaps on, and they sat down in a very dignified manner. One of them said to me, you know, if you were a Muslim, you would have no problem with this. 
You just accept what the Quran teaches. You don't argue with God. No true prophet would argue with God. We don't ask why God does things. We are Muslims. We are submitters. We just do what he commands us. So Abraham could have said the same. I will just Muslim myself to God. I will just submit to him even though it makes no sense. That's what I call blind faith, if you can even use the word faith at all in that. But I've said to Muslims, there's a fourth alternative. And this is the one according to the Bible that Abraham chose after he'd given thought to it. It's very interesting that in uh, Romans 4, Paul twice says, Abraham considered his own body which is good as dead. He considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. That word, considered. I mean, he thought about it. He wrestled with this. He asked himself hard questions. And then when you read in Hebrews 11, you come to much the same. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. And he considered that God was able to raise men from the dead. And the same word, it comes again. So unlike a good Muslim who won't consider, who will just submit, Abraham said, no, I'm not going to submit. I'm going to think about this. In fact, I'm going to work it out because I think God will keep his promise. I think his word will prove true. And so therefore, I believe the only way that God could ever fulfill his promise is to bring Isaac back to life. And as he does that, he says, wow, if he does that, now I know why it's going to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham had a sixth sense that a burnt offering was a sin offering. And he thought, somehow my son, by giving his life, is going to become, through his resurrection, a real blessing to the nations. This is faith responding to God's faithfulness. And this is what happens when you start thinking and when you start considering and you base your conclusions on God's faithfulness. And this is where we go way beyond Islam and this is where we get into the Christian concept of things. When Muslims say, no prophet would ever argue with God, as I was told. No prophet would ever question God's decrees. Well, in the Bible, that is exactly what Abraham does. On another occasion, and the Lord just loved testing Abraham. He was stretching him all the time. Yeah, we're on a good footing, Abraham. You're my friend, and I'm no longer going to demand that you are absolutely righteous, but boy, I'm going to look for absolute faith in return from you, and I'm going to stretch it to the absolute limit. So one day he thinks I'll try him out again. So he says to Abraham, you know, I've heard what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, terrible. What's coming up to my ears shocks me. I'm going to go down and have a look. And if it's as bad as people, as I'm hearing, I don't quite know what the Lord's referring to, but I almost sense there's a sort of irony, there's sort of sarcasm in all this, as if God is pretending he doesn't know what's going on. So I'm going to go and watch down there and see what's happening. And if it's as bad as I've heard, I'm going to wipe those cities out to the man. And what does Abraham do? Does he say to God, Aslam too, I submit. In the second surah of the Quran, there's a verse where God says to Abraham, Aslim, I think it's about verse 131, submit. And Abraham, like an army soldier, or like a dog coming to heel, just says, Aslam too, I submit. That's good Muslim uh, faith. That's submission. That's what Muslim means. I'm a good submitter. Quran says he was one of the Musliman. He was a good Muslim, a good submitter. Well, not in this case he wasn't. In this case he does exactly the opposite. He says, I won't submit. He starts arguing with God. He says, wait a minute. He says, he thinks of Sodom and Gomorrah and he thinks there must be a, they're not some righteous people there. I know there's some horrible things going on there, but I mean, I don't think those cities are so bad. So he says to him, what if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? 
are you going to destroy those people as well? You're just going to wipe everybody out? Is your attitude, I don't mind if I convict the innocent as long as I catch the guilty? Is that how you think? Look, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fear as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25. Well, you won't find in the Quran that most of the prophets argue with God, but they sure do in the Bible. By the way, Moses also argued with God when he thought on another occasion that God was compromising his own faithfulness when he said to Moses, I'm tired of this nation. Oh, they just rebel against me all the time. Moses, you're standing in the way. Please just move out the way and I'm going to really let go and I'm going to wipe this nation out. You know what, Moses? And here comes a sort of promise like the one he made to Abraham. I'll make a new nation out of you. Oh, Moses could have taken the soft option and said, that's great, that'll help me as too. I'm also tired of this nation. <laughs> but uh, Moses didn't. He went and he stood right in front of God. He said, no, you don't. He said, you're going to blot anybody out of your book of life, blot me. He said, you can't destroy this nation. He said, you promised them that you would bring them into the promised land. Do you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, you couldn't get them in. You were unable to bring them in, so you slaughtered them in the wilderness. Or worse still, you brought them out only to turn them into a sacrifice and slaughter them in the wilderness. Is that the reputation you want among the Gentiles? <laughs> Do you think God was angry with these two prophets that they argued with him? Not at all. As he sat there, just a broad smile came on his face and he just said, wow, it's wonderful to have men like these who just call me and when I test them, they don't let go. Abraham, you just don't do it. Moses, you can shut me out if you must. But you be true to yourself. And these two just simply put a smile on God's face. Let's get back to the question of fatherhood. Sun and the moon. Abraham's faith, as I said earlier, was simply a reflection of God's faithfulness. And at times like this, you see that faith and that faithfulness really coming together, getting onto the same wavelength. But Abraham would have asked himself, why does God call me the father of the nations? What am I? I'm just flesh and blood. I'm just dust. He says to himself, who is the true father of the nations? It can only be God. Now, my faith has been credited to me as righteousness, but it's like the moon. It's just a reflection of God's faithfulness. So he says to himself, if so, then my fatherhood is a reflection of God's fatherhood. And watch where he goes from there. By my fatherhood is a reflection of his fatherhood, and so is everything that follows. God promises me a son born uniquely, of a woman who could never normally have children. I know what's going to happen. God's true son is going to come into the world born uniquely of another woman who to all intents and purposes couldn't have children. I doubt if he saw, foresaw the virgin birth of Christ, but he certainly knew it was going to be a unique birth. Now, Abraham says, things begin to make sense. When God's son comes, same is going to happen to him as mine. He's going to be offered up as a sacrifice at a point in time when he's really achieved nothing, like Isaac. Hasn't got any children, nothing, not a heritage at all, but he's going to cut himself off and he's going to be burnt out as a sin offering for the human race. <laughs> and then what's going to happen? God is going to raise his own son from the dead and so it goes on. Abraham 
to put it in a nutshell, foresaw the whole Christian gospel purely by considering and by taking that faith further. And on the basis of his faith in God's faithfulness, he worked it out. He said, just as my son has been given for God and I'm being tested to the hilt to see if my love for God can be perfected and my faith in God can be perfected, that I'll even give my son for God. Well, now I know what's going to happen. God is going to send his own son into the world for us and give us the best that he could possibly give us. And in Galatians 3.8 you read these words. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Can't think of the verse but just comes to mind. In the Quran where it says that Ibrahim, Abraham was neither a Jew, one of the Yahudu, nor a Christian, one of the Nasara, but he was a Muslim. Well, believe me, I think the Quran is wrong. Abraham was a Christian. He was a prototype of a true Christian because he foresaw the whole coming of the Savior, God's Son into the world as a redemption for our sins. And he did that because he did not live as a servant of God, merely submitting to God's will, but he lived as a friend of God, trusting his faithfulness at all times and knowing that nothing would break that good relationship. So, he also works out that this is not an immoral thing that God is asking him. Uh, it seemed horrific that God should ask for a son to be sacrificed. But when Abraham thinks it over and he thinks, no, no, this is just a symbol of what God is going to do for us. He solves the moral issue. He solves the promise issue. And he solves the love issue. He works it all out because of the intensity and the depth of his faith in God's faithfulness. So as Abraham and Isaac go up to the hill, Isaac says to him, my father, here is the rope, here is the knife, but what are we going to sacrifice? That must have been a pretty tough moment for Abraham. But he gives a very confident answer. He says, my son, Genesis 22 verse 8, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the Hebrew word goes further than even the English does. It says God will give of himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Many centuries later, John the Baptist one day was just standing and he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said to his disciples, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's come. I was sent to reveal him to Israel, John 1.29. And Jesus himself, I'm not speculating on this. Don't think I'm just coming up with a very fancy story here or just dreaming things up about what Abraham had worked out. I know, I know this is exactly what he did because Jesus confirmed it. One day Jesus and the Jews were arguing, like they did almost every day. And the Jews said to him, Hey, you know, Abraham, he is our father, and we believe in him, but we don't know you, where you come from. You know, who are you? You're not even 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? How can you say, if a man believes my word, he'll never taste death? So Jesus said to them in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. And that's an understatement. What he's saying is he saw it and he was delighted. There you've got it. He foresaw my coming, Jesus said. He was a Christian. Abraham was the father of all true Christian believers. He was not a Muslim. He was not a submitter. He was a man of faith, a man of true faith, responding to God's faithfulness. God spared the son of Abraham. 
Both Abraham and Isaac are only types. Abraham a type of God's fatherhood, Isaac a type of the saviour to come. But the ram in the thicket that was slaughtered was a symbol of God's substitution to come. And you know, especially when Eid al-Adah comes around every year, this is one of the best times to witness to Muslims of what God achieved for us when he gave his son for us. I've often said to Muslims, you have one day in a year, Eid al-Adah, Bakri Eid, in the middle of the Hajj pilgrimage, the last month of the Muslim year, when you commemorate the willingness of a man to give his son for God. I said, but you don't understand that we Christians 365 days a year celebrate the willingness of God to give his son for us. And in Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. Will he not give us all things with him? That's the point. The sacrifice of Abraham's son was probably the toughest call on any human being ever in his love for God. But it's only a reflection of God's own toughness against himself in being willing to give his son for us. And this brings me to the heart of our Christian message to the Muslims. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Don't have to tell you what verse that is, I'm sure. John 3.16. Well, I have often put these questions to Muslims at this point. I said, why did God ask Abraham for his son? I said, that's really strange. I said, you know, wipe out a man's life, do this abominable thing that all the pagans did to their gods I said why didn't he just say to him Abraham if you really love me you'll go and give a thousand dollars to the synagogue next week and so that I can promote my kingdom or give me 50 sheep and then I've also said to them what did Allah himself ever do for Ibrahim to match this and thirdly what has he ever done for you that you can really say is a proof of his outstanding love for you you know, Muslims battle, battle to answer those questions. They can answer the first one quite easily. When I say, why didn't he ask for a thousand rand or that South African currency or a thousand dollars, American currency, or 50 sheep? Oh, no, you, you've got to understand. The closest thing to a man's heart is his son. Uh, in Cape Town in South Africa, I remember sitting in a Muslim home and I brought this up and I was actually almost teasing the Muslim guy a little bit. I said, you know, I said, this is a thing to ask. I said... I said, you know, I said, Abraham, according to your Quran, was actually willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice. I said, what? That's a terrible thing. That's murder. I said to God, uh, to, uh, to Moses, God said, you shall not kill. So that's the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments. To Abraham, God says, you shall kill. I said, he contradicts himself. <laughs> this Muslim guy says to me, he says, you don't understand. He says, it was different. <laughs> he says, Abraham was asked to give his son for God to test his love for God. If a man will, if, if will give his son for God, he'll give God anything. Smiled. I said, you know what? I said, that's the whole Christian gospel. If he'll give his son for us, he'll give us anything. It's the whole heart of the Christian message. I said, this is just a symbol of what God has done for us. Often I say to Muslims, does God love you? You know, some Muslims even say to me, I never even thought to ever ask myself that question. I've had that. Never thought about that. God love me? Hmm. No, never even asked that question. I said, well, has he done anything that you could say? I mean, your husband's done things for you. Your mother did things for you. Your father, you do things for your children. 
What has God done for you? And these are the answers I get. Well, no, he has, you know, God has been very good to me. You know, I was in a lot of financial trouble a few years ago and prayed about it and uh, came right. You know, my son was in ill health. He was at the point of death and we prayed about it. We even took him on Hajj and, you know, he came back healthy. And I hear these sort of stories all the time. And then I say, well, that's wonderful. I said, and I'm not going to question it. I said, but is, what did that cost God? I said, what price did he pay to do all that for you? Those are all free gifts from God. Those are handouts, freebies. <laughs> I'm speaking a little bit irreverently, but it's to make the point. Oh, no, no, those are wonderful things God did for us. I said, well, listen, I said, what has God ever done that cost him something? $1,000, $2,000 or whatever. God ever paid a price to show his love for you? The Muslim can only give you one answer to that. No, nothing. I said, well, in our case, he's done everything gave his son for us and that is what Abraham's gift of his son for God is it's just a reflection just as Abraham's faith is a reflection of God's faithfulness so the gift of his son was a reflection of God's son for you I find this folk one of the most powerful if not the most powerful points of witness in the Christian scripture towards Muslims certainly the one that in my experience makes the biggest impact on them take your only son Isaac whom you love and give him up for me. If he could give his son, nothing more would be needed. Abraham only had to contemplate the sacrifice. God spared it. But in our case, as I said, Romans 8.32 that I quoted, God did not spare his own son. 1 John 4 verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. The very next verse in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation of our sins. The Quran constantly uses this expression, Milata Ibrahim, faith of Abraham. Surah 2.130, 2.135. But as I've said to you in Islam, it means nothing more than just unquestioning submission. There's a verse I mentioned earlier, Surah 2, verse 131. Recall when his Lord said to him, Muslim, submit. He simply replied, I submit, Islam to, to the Lord of the worlds. Heal, come to heal. That's all. And in Surah 37, 103 to 105, this is the story of the sacrifice of Abraham's son. It says, when they had both submitted, in words in Arabic, when they had Islamed, Muslimed, Aslamad, when they had submitted, and he'd thrown him down on his forehead. We called out, oh, Abraham, you've already fulfilled the vision. The Quran just misses the implications behind this incident completely. And just unfortunately sees it as nothing more than a man's willingness, blindly, unquestioningly, even when he's been given promises to the contrary, have every good reason to ask a few questions about God. Just says, doesn't mind, I'll just put the blinkers on, I'll do it anyway. Let me close with a question you're probably asking in your minds and which we get asked often. Which son was it, Ishmael or Isaac? The Muslims say it was Ishmael. And of course, if they've been on Hajj, or every year they have Bakri Eid, Udul Adah, that comes to mind. And they're quite sure it was Ishmael. In fact, many Muslims have never heard that it was Isaac. And when they do, they say, what? Where did you get that from? We've always been taught as children that it was Ishmael. And then you sit down and you really open things up for them. And you say to them, well, the Jewish and Christian scriptures confirm 
unhesitatingly that it was Isaac. They name him. Uh, quote to Genesis 22, verse 2 to you. Take your son, the only son Isaac, Ishak, whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice. Hebrews 11:17. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was willing to offer his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your descendants will be named. James 21, Abraham offered up Isaac. So all over the Bible, you find the son who was sacrificed is named very specifically. But the only place in the Quran where the story of a sacrifice appears, sort of 37, there's no mention of which son it was. It just says, recall when Abraham, his Lord said to him, submit. And in Surah 37, you find that the son is mentioned, the son asks him questions, some things that are not even in the Bible, but he's not named. It's strange. Quran claims to confirm what is in the former scriptures in Surah 548. And in Surah 16, verse 64, it says to come to clear up any confusion of what might have been there beforehand. Well, here you have the reverse. Here the Quran creates a confusion. There was no confusion till the Quran came. Because beforehand it was clearly known that the son sacrificed was Isaac. But the Quran causes confusion by not naming him at all. But seeing it says it's confirming the former scriptures, if there had been an error here, if the Quran is Kitabullah, the word of Allah, you would have expected this error to have been corrected. Would have said the Jews and the Christians say it was Isaac. How they are deceived in sort of Quranic language. Verily it was Ishmael. That's what would have been there. Something like that. But there's nothing to that effect. The Quran just leaves the biblical confirmation in the Torah and in the Injil, Old and New Testaments, um, unchanged. So for the Muslim, there's no real argument he can bring about which son it was. Muslims bring out some sort of argument here. I've heard them say to me, oh, but you see, you've changed your Bible. The Bible says that God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And they've said, look, they've said it couldn't have been because the first son of Abraham was Ishmael. So if God said, take your only son, it must have been Ishmael. Couldn't have been Isaac because he was a second son. And I say to them, well, I said, that doesn't make sense to me. I said, because firstly, I said, the Bible goes on to show from there right through that Isaac was the one through whom God made the covenant. I said, in any event, Ishmael was not the legitimate son of Abraham. Elsewhere in Genesis, when Abraham says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight, God says, no. He says, when Sarah said, send the slave woman and her son away, God said to Abraham, listen to your wife. And the Quran confirms that Abraham only had one wife. And it confirms that the son promised was the son of his wife, Sarah, and it names the son promised as Isaac. And it was the promised son who was called to be sacrificed. Simple as that. And then you find in Surah 37, and this is really strange, because just after this narrative, you read these words. Surah 37, 112 to 113. And we announced to him Isaac, prophet of the righteous and we blessed him and Isaac now you know this this really beats me if I honestly think I could have written the Quran at this point a little bit better than whoever compiled it because it gives you such a strange story of Abraham offering his son for God doesn't name him and then it follows it up with these words and we announced to him Isaac a prophet of the righteous Muslims say you see 
The first passage is about Ishmael, and then he announces Isaac. So it's very strange that he gives you a story about one son and doesn't name him, and he gives you another son and names him and gives you no story. <laughs> so it just doesn't make sense. I said, why, why, why is the Quran so um, indistinct about the son sacrificed? I said, you can read this either way. Either the son sacrificed was Ishmael, unnamed, followed by an annunciation of Isaac. I said, or this is simply a very indirect confirmation which goes before it. I think Muhammad just was uncertain. He didn't know. So he keeps this very open and he just makes sure that it doesn't go too far. Because in that previous passage, it clearly says that the two of them aslamed. They islamed. They, they submitted. Falamma aslama, when they had both submitted, which is the best thing any two Muslims could do. And then it finishes by saying, we blessed him and Isaac. Seems to be a clear allusion to the previous text. Because they both submitted, we blessed them, both. But the Quran just leaves us very open, very vague, and very uncertain. You can tell any Muslim without any difficulty <coughs> that there is no doubt in the Bible as to which son was offered. You see in Surah 11:71, it says, His wife was standing by wondering, and we announced to her the good news of Isaac, from the progeny of Isaac, Jacob. That's a clear confirmation of the biblical record that the covenant went through Abraham's wife. God promised the son to his wife, Sarah, and from there the line of descent came. Hagar is not even mentioned in the Quran. She's certainly not the wife of uh, Abraham in the Bible. In Galatians 4, she's called the slave woman. It is Sarah who is the free woman and the mother of the son who'd been promised. Even the Quran itself elsewhere, in Surah 29, verse 27, testifies to the preference of Isaac. And we granted to him Isaac and Jacob. There's the line of descent coming. And we ordained through his progeny, notice that, the prophethood and the scripture. Very interesting that Ishmael in the Quran is generally only named. No mention of him in Surah 37 at the point of the sacrifice. But here you have a clear indication that the covenant line, the covenant God was making, was to go down through the definite line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <coughs> That's why we call him. That's why the Bible calls him. And why God called himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Moses went to see the burning bush, and he heard the voice saying to him, Take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. He then heard these words, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, not the God of Ishmael. We gave to Isaac the Nubuah, the prophethood, and we gave to him the Kitab, Kitab Allah, the scripture. To them, Paul says in Romans 9, belong the scripture, covenant, the worship, the promises, and from their race is the Christ. God be blessed forever. Came through this particular line. And that's why Paul says again in Galatians 4, verses 28 and 31, he brings this distinction out between Isaac and Ishmael very clearly. He says, now we brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So all the true children of Abraham are those who followed the faith of Abraham, who believe in the uh, Savior that God sent, just as Abraham saw that his son was <coughs> Isaac 
was to be the symbol of that saviourhood. And so in Romans 4, right at the end of the chapter, um, Paul says, What was reckoned to Abraham, that you are declared righteous in God's sight, will be reckoned to us also if we believe in him who fulfilled that promise, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was put to death for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Once again, I can't help repeating that this is one of the best and the most fertile areas of Christian witness to Muslims. And I would recommend you use many of the points I've used in this talk.